Amen. Good to see you today. Um, If you'll imagine with me for a moment, let's say a group of us decided to go together and sign up for a college class. doesn't matter what the college class is in. We went together to take this class. And on day one, the professor gave us a test. And the test was like, there's no way we could pass the test because it's on all the stuff that we're supposed to learn in the class. They want to kind of see where you're at. So we all take the test and we all bomb it. We all get Fs. Now, some of us might have got a high F. Maybe (laughs) you got a 52. Somebody else, they got like a 32. But we all failed. Now, if that happened, there would be basically three kinds of reactions and There are kind of three kinds of people when it comes to this kind of thing. There are going to be some students who would get their test back and go, oh, this is the way I always am. I am so dumb. I never can do anything right, and this just confirms it, how stupid I am. That would be one type. There's another kind who would be like, everybody failed, but I nailed it with the 52. I got the highest F on the test. Look at some of these people got in their 30s. I got 52, man. What's wrong? And you'd be strutting around like you deserve some sort of an award. Then there's a third type of person who would just go, you know what? I'm glad we all failed because we're all in it together. It means nobody's that much of a genius in the class. And I feel like I'm in good company. We all got kind of the same letter grade, and therefore, I'm looking forward to what I'm going to learn as I take this class. Now, obviously, the first category, the people who always feel like failures, there are people who go through life, and every time something goes wrong, they feel responsible. That person that thinks they aced it with a 52, like an F+, (laughs) there are people like that, that always compare themselves to others and go, I may be bad, but I'm better than you are, and they all, all grade on the curve. In, in the middle where you go, this is cool, we're all in this together, that should be the way most people are, but it really isn't. Now, I use this illustration because if you understand that, you can understand what the law is about in the Old Testament. When God gave the law, a list of all of these rules, everything you're supposed to do, and in those, I mean, you had the big, the, the Ten Commandments. You, you start out with no other gods before me and, and no idols and don't take God's name in vain and keep the Sabbath and, don't, and respect your parents and, and don't lie and, and don't covet other people's stuff. And so you have those lists. The reason why God gave that law was not to make you perfect. The reason God gave the law is so you would go, oh, shoot, we all failed. We need something else. I can't do this on my own. God didn't create the law to make you feel like, well, I mean, I only broke three of the Ten Commandments. It must be terrible to be you or you broke six. Well, this is the conflict that Jesus had constantly with the Jews, especially with the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were the guys who got a 52 on the test and thought they were geniuses. 
because they were better than other people. They looked at the law and said, we're pretty good as long as you grade on the curve, as long as you compare us to others. And Jesus was constantly trying to explain to them the purpose of the law is not so that you could be strutting around like you're something special. The purpose of the law is to show everyone that this class is just starting and there's so much more that you need to learn and you will get much further if you accept the fact that you can't nail it, that you aren't the A-plus student when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to life. So turn to Matthew chapter 19. It's the chapter we've come to today. And this is another example among many of Jesus dealing with this whole concept of what is the law as it connects to your life. Now, we're going through Matthew, and Matthew was written for Jews. Jews had a big problem with this, and so we've seen it come up again and again. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where the Lord lays out these impossible standards. He says things like, if you say you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you even look at somebody to lust after them, you're already guilty of adultery. And then he goes, in case you don't get it, here's the deal. Be perfect like God is. And they're like, uh-oh. But here again, he's dealing with the Pharisees. And it says that he left the Galilee, went down uh, toward Jerusalem, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. But verse 3, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were called Pharisees. The word means to divide and separate. They were the guys that were proud of the 52 on the test. They're the guys who go, we may not be perfect, but we're way better than you are. And so they came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, first of all, in those days, a woman couldn't divorce her husband. So he's only talking about a man divorcing his wife. But they're not trying to find out whether divorce is okay. Divorce was a part of the law. You know, it was a reality. But when they say, is it lawful to divorce them for any reason? That goes back to a division among the Jewish rabbis. There was a school of rabbis called the Shammai. They followed a rabbi named Shammai. And there was another school, Hallel, that followed a rabbi named Hallel. And they had two different, you know, versions of what was acceptable for divorce. And so the Shammai school was really strict. And they said, oh, you know, there are only certain specific cases that justify divorce. But the Hallel school was like, come on. It could be anything. In fact, the Hillel school said that if a woman burns dinner totally by accident, that is grounds for divorce biblically. And so theirs was called any cause divorce. Because they're like, no, any reason is okay for divorce. So what they're trying to do is, is sucker Jesus into making a commitment between Hillel and Shammai, which would then divide. Now, as it turned out, historically, the Hillel school won, and eventually all the Jews were pretty much, yeah, you can divorce them for any reason, kind of like us. But, you know, they were like wanting to divide him. But look what Jesus does. It's really clever. He said, okay, 
Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, Adam and Eve? That comes as a surprise to people today. But he said, (laughs) for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Isn't that what it said in Genesis? So then... They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So he goes, you want me to choose between any cause divorce or certain cause divorce? How about this? You're supposed to get married and stay married, period. That was the way it was from the beginning. So you want me to take a position? I say, why don't you just stay married? Now hang with me they said to him why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away see because and it wasn't just Moses it was the Holy Spirit inspiring Moses in the Old Testament it gave instructions for divorce in fact in some cases where um, a a man wasn't providing for his family or a man man and woman weren't having a healthy physical relationship or whatever God told them, give her a writing of divorce. Don't make her stick around and treat her badly like this. They made promises. You didn't keep your promises. It was off. So they go, how can you act like, oh, no, there's no divorce. And they go, it's in the law. You know that. Moses wrote that. But Jesus' response, he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, he said, yeah, it's true. In an imperfect world, people's hearts get hard, and a divorce is better than tearing each other apart. A divorce is better than the kind of misery that happens if you, if somebody in that marriage will not compromise and will not change. Yeah, God, and again, This is the nature of the whole law. The only reason for all of these commandments is because people aren't perfect. So he said, you're trying to argue that you have the perfect position because you have the right position on divorce. And I'm telling you, you wouldn't even have to ask this question if your heart isn't hard. And as far as that goes, you wouldn't need any rules at all if you didn't have a heart that was hard. So he's going back to the source of all this. And then he says kind of a a surprising thing. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and we don't, it says sexual immorality, the Greek word's pornaya. He's not clear what pornaya actually looks like, is it could be the accumulation of patterns of behavior where you fail to keep the, you know, the, the, the vows that you make, like the way we promise to love, comfort, honor, and keep over a period of time. If, if you're not keeping those vows, okay. But, he says, if you divorce somebody, your wife, and you marry another, you're committing adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Whoa. Now, here's something weird. I mean, often people have said that Adultery is grounds for divorce. In fact, some people say adultery is the only grounds for divorce. But if you look at what Jesus says here, he's not justifying anybody who's doing anything. First of all, he's saying, the only reason we're having this discussion is because you guys are so stubborn. 
But notice how he gives this example. He goes, okay, if a man divorces his wife and he marries somebody else, he's committing adultery. That's pretty easy to figure. But the weird thing is, he goes, and then their spouse marries somebody else, they're committing adultery too. That's a real problem. Because we'll take a hypothetical, you know, say there's this couple named Ricky and Lucy. And Ricky divorces Lucy to marry Ethel. Okay, now you would go, well, at least, you know, Fred and and Lucy have grounds to get remarried because that's adultery. But he goes, no, you know, Ricky and Ethel are guilty of adultery. And by the way, so are Lucy and Fred. How, How could that be? See, he's not setting up rules about how this should be done. He's going, the fact is, man, people are messed up. People are damaged and they get affected by sin and rebellion. And it's a bigger picture. It is not about here are the rules and here's what you do. He goes, there's something way more critical that's at play here. And the disciples picked up on this and they're like, whoa, what are you talking about? They said to him in verse 10, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry They're like, why in the world would anybody get married if you don't have any way out of the deal? Because we know, I mean, people turn into somebody different than what they were. And so wouldn't it be better just to kind of stay single and play the field? Is kind of what the disciples were saying. Then Jesus gets really weird with them. He goes, well, you know, there is the option of being a eunuch. Oh, yeah, it's true. If you don't want to violate the rules of adultery, for instance, or the rules of divorce, then don't ever get married. And then he gives, it's kind of a fascinating thing. He says, not everybody can accept this. But in verse 12, there are eunuchs who were born this way from their mother's womb. There are some people who just aren't born with the desire to procreate, to be with somebody of the opposite sex and to create a family. So if that's you then that works. And the disciples are like, "Uh, what are the other choices? (laughs) Well, there are some people who are made eunuchs by people and they would do this for, uh, you know, they would forcibly sterilize a man if he was going to work in the house and you didn't trust your wife or wives. And the disciples are like, "Uh, another choice? And then he says, but there are also those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. There are those who will just choose to be celibate. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So, what a mess. You start out with this discussion about which divorce is okay and which isn't, and what are the grounds and what aren't. And he's like, you know what? The very existence of divorce proves that your heart is hard. If you were perfect, don't worry about being the perfect divorced person. The very fact that divorce exists is that we aren't perfect. And that's the way it is with every other law or commandment. You wouldn't have needed the law if people were perfect. Just like you wouldn't need to give a test to people to show them what they don't know if they knew everything. And so he's trying to explain to them, you're you're those people that think you're better than other people because you haven't done things as bad as they've done. 
That's not the way it works. And only if you don't do anything at all could you ever avoid doing something that is a sin. Sin is ingrained in us, no matter what we do. So he says, let's stop having anybody take the high road. Well, I had the biblical divorce. No. That's, he's going, no, the very fact that there's divorce is because people aren't perfect. Can you accept the fact that you're not perfect? Now it jumps to a really surprising thing. After this discussion, the disciples are like, so we choose between staying married or being a eunuch? And nobody asks any more questions. Like, I'm afraid we're not going to be allowed to eat either. You know? so, so then, little children were brought to him, verse 13, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. They're like, uh, we're talking about eunuchs and divorce and adultery. And, and don't you think the kids should just go be over in their class playing games? Rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid hands on them and departed from there. In some ways, that seems totally out of place. Because now next he's going to go into the rich young ruler and telling him what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. But I think the timing is perfect. For one thing, if you're having a discussion about divorce and adultery and things like that, how about you look at kids and ask yourself, what kind of a person should I be for these children? And every... Every case of marriage is breaking down where there are kids involved. Now, it isn't just about your kids. It's about kids in general. Jesus didn't have any kids. And yet he held the kids and goes, I'm so sick of talking about adultery and divorce and all that. I just want to play with the kids. Because those kids are closer to the heart of God. By the way, most of the stupid things we do if we were really thinking of children, if we were even thinking like children, we wouldn't do them. Almost everything that we do that messes up our lives is because we ignore what Jesus says. These kids are more like the kingdom. You need to be more like kids. You need to think of kids. You need to think of how those kids affect you and impact your life and how what you do affects who they become. And so how could it be that children are closer to the kingdom of heaven than theologians because children just don't think they're so smart. They have no problem asking questions and asking and asking and asking and asking. They're not given answers like Pharisees. And they're usually, as they get older, sometimes this changes sometimes drastically, but they're usually not so worried about, you know, where am I in relationship to everyone else? They're learning stuff every day. And so Jesus blesses them and prays for them. And he goes, you wouldn't be asking me these stupid questions about how righteous you are if you would just look at kids and learn from them. So then that rotates right into the guy we call the rich young ruler. Um, It doesn't say he's a ruler in Matthew, but it does in the other Gospels. But a guy came to him and said, good teacher, verse 16. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life. The idea is, what do I need to do to make sure that I am in heaven? And so Jesus said, well, first of all, why do you call me good? 
Nobody's good but one, and that's God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He goes, okay, no problem. Which ones? And he began to name some of the most basic commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy goes, done. I have kept all of these commandments ever since I was a little kid. So what's missing? What do I like? He had a sense that he didn't have an assurance that he was right before God, but he knew. He was the guy with the 52 on the test going, I'm better than anybody else. Now how can I raise my grade? Jesus said to him, well, okay, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. He said, I sense that there's something about you. You're successful. You have a lot. But, you know, you think you're keeping the law. But the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments is have no other God before me. You can't value anything more than me. So he goes, here's the thought. Give away your stuff. Give it to the poor. Now, in the same way that playing with children helps you to think about what matters most, Looking at the poor helps you to appreciate what you have. But he said, what you need to do is let go of some of your stuff. You need to, and the best place to put it is the poor. It's interesting how often Jesus had compassion on the poor, and yet he never did a welfare program. And he told, at one point, he told the disciples, you know, the poor you have with you always. We don't give to the poor to solve the poor's problems. We give to the poor to solve our problems. That every time we let go of something, it's helpful for us. But for this guy, that was it. Um, I'll obey anything you want me to obey, but am I going to give away my stuff? And it said that he heard it, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He finally hit the lesson that we all have to hit at some point. I cannot make myself perfect. I cannot save myself. I cannot measure up to the standards of righteousness before God. One of the other Gospels, I think in Luke, said that Jesus watched him walking away. And he looked at him and he had compassion on him. Jesus was like, I'm so sad that you don't get this. But if you don't get it, I can't give it to you. You need to understand your need before you can ever receive everything that I want you to receive. And so then uh, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. And said, if rich people can't get saved, who in the world can? And Jesus looked at them in verse 26 and said to them, with men, it's impossible. With God, everything is possible. The point of understanding the rules is that you cannot follow the rules. The point to knowing the difference between good and and evil between right and wrong is to recognize 
everybody in this class is failing the test. And I cannot look down on someone else, nor can I look on myself and feel like I'm hopeless. No, you're all in this together, he's saying. This is going to require God to do something. That is your only hope. And that's the point of the law. Disciples still didn't get it. Peter goes, well, you know, we're not rich. We've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? I mean, a lot of them had left their wives back at home so they could go follow Jesus. That's why they were kind of worrying about, you know, divorce. But because I'm sure it was discussed. But he said, we've left everything. And Jesus said to him, in the, in, the, in the resurrection, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who followed me are going to sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or land for my name's sake, you lose any of that for me, you'll receive a hundredfold and you'll inherit eternal life. He said, look, don't expect in this life for it to pay off doing the right thing. Doing the wrong thing is what will pay off more often than not in this life. But he said, do you really care about eternity? If so, anything that you give up, no matter what it is for me, don't worry. You'll be compensated generously. But, in verse 30, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. He said, when the story's all said and done, you couldn't have predicted who was going to be the A student. You couldn't have predicted who was going to end up on top. It's just deceptive. Now, he says, many, as he says, who are first will be last, and last first. He didn't say everyone. It's not automatic that the harder life you have here, the better life you're going to have in heaven. He's saying many because it's just unpredictable. I remember years ago when we would have the baptisms at Corona Del Mar, people would crowd, and most of them wanted Chuck to baptize them. People like me, we were just the express line. And, you know, it's like I, we were talking about this this week. I'd see people in line for Chuck to baptize them, and then they'd, like, look at their watch, and then they'd come over and have me baptize them. But Chuck would always say, okay, don't crowd. Remember, the last will be first, and the first will be last. So people develop this stupid superstition that what you wanted to do is wait around and be the last person that Chuck baptized because that would make you first. No, it's not that simple. Some who have a lot now will have less then. Some who have a lot less now will have more then. You just can't tell. So you submit to the God who made you You submit to the Lord who gave his life for you and you stop worrying about where you fall in the pecking order. See, again, this is the point of the Bible. This is the point of the law. As far as that goes, this is the point of every rule that there is, is that here we are. None of us can follow the rules. Um, Most of us drive. You ever break the speed limit? If not, the back of your car is probably all smashed in from people ramming into you because they're going the flow of traffic while you're the idiot that's trying to drive the speed limit. But that's life. 
I don't know if you've noticed, but this last week, you sinned. You fell short of everything that God has for you. See, like Paul said in Romans 3, nobody is justified by the law. Because, as he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's the message that Jesus, over and over again, was trying to communicate. And it isn't to beat you up. A lot of times people will be like, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Yeah, it's true. But we're all sinners. And not one of us has the right to say that my sin doesn't stink as badly as yours. Congratulations, your F is a 52 and mine's a 38. So what? We all flunked. Every one of us has come short of God's righteous standard for earning your way to privilege in the kingdom. But man, is it liberating when we discover the truth that what Jesus did for us is he made it possible. He goes, I know you didn't do well on that test. I'm going to take the test for you, and I will ace it. If there's some way one of my answers is wrong, the teacher's the one that's wrong. I got this, and I'm doing it for you. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the Bible. That's what Jesus wanted them to understand. Oh, quit worrying about whether this is right. Oh, uh, if you do this, you can have a divorce. Or if you, you, know, if you give this much, then you can. No. He's like, no, everybody should look at the requirements of the law and go, I don't have a chance. Because it's only that that causes us to depend on the one who paid the price for us. Now, I'm not saying that you, know, that you can't live a better life by following the rules and principles that God gives us. All of those rules are there to try to help us do the best we can. But it's important that we never judge other people because we think their sin's worse than ours. It isn't. And that we never feel hopeless because it isn't. But we realize we are all in this together. Isn't it amazing? that the Son of God gave his life so that we could be free. So that, as, as Isaiah said, <laughs> we've all gone astray, turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That way, if I find out that, eh, I didn't do so well today, it's okay, he did really well. He's fine. Everything I do that's a failure... I may pay a price for it, but he takes it on himself and says, I'm giving you a fresh start every second of the day. That's really good news unless you decide that you think you're good apart from that. You start thinking that you deserve something from God. You are rejecting the very love and forgiveness that God provides. Jesus wanted them to understand it. Obviously, at this point, they really didn't. Someday they would. You see from the apostles in the book of Acts, it began to sink in. The glory of the gospel, the beauty of grace and forgiveness. But until we learn that, we can sit and look down our noses at some people. We can look at other people and think, wow, they're, they're awesome. Or we can just give up and feel like, I can't do it. 
We're all in this together, you guys. We all got the F. Let's accept that and move forward in thinking, how can I be inspired by the gift of life that God has given me? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We're so sorry when we're like nitpicking over which sin we're guilty of and which we aren't. And we're looking down our noses at the guy with that got 42 on the test because we got the 51. Help us to understand that it is even ground at the foot of the cross that your law, your rules, your truth, your gospel is for all of us. Please deliver us from the kind of judgmentalism that causes us to look down on somebody who has a sin that we don't have and think somehow we're the F+. Help us to receive from you that gift of grace that then we can extend to others as well. Lord, as we watch kids and play with them, as we take something that we have and we give it to somebody who needs it, remind us and teach us that this is ultimately what it looks like when you're secure enough that you don't think you're so important that you can't afford a few extra hours to help. Or we don't think that we're so greedy that we can't let go of some of our precious money in order to help somebody else who has a need. Help us to understand until we know that children and poor people are on our level, that people who are maybe committing what we would consider to be gross sins, and I'm sure you do too, that somehow we're better than they are, will never understand your gospel. So please teach us that truth. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.